Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everybody, welcome to Performance Anxiety. I'm your host, Mark, and I want to give a big thank you to our sponsor, AKG, for sending us their podcast essentials kit. The amazing Lira mic and headphones are the best way to get into podcasting. Jimmy Necco joins me for this one. His voice is one of the most powerful instruments I've ever heard. But he didn't start off singing. He started as a BMX racer. He got a sponsorship from TNT Bikes, but he also got hit by a car. Jimmy describes seeing the power of music as a kid and discovering his own voice in the studio with a Black Sabbath tribute band playing a Motley Crue song. The story of the band Ours is a fascinating one with so many detours. It starts with a bidding war after the band had played just five shows. But there are a lot of lessons learned in this story, the most important of which for Jimmy is that sometimes missed opportunities aren't bad, they're just a chance to get the work done the right way. Jimmy also describes how the new self-titled Ours album brings the band full circle and how Pasta saved his voice. Follow the band at Ours Music on Instagram. Look for them on Facebook. The website is ours.net for merch, tour dates, and more. Follow us at Performance ANX on social media. Merchandise is available at performanceanx.threadless.com. ko-fi.com slash performanceanxiety is where you can show us some love with a cup of coffee. Now settle in for a roller coaster ride with Jimmy Necco of ours on Performance Anxiety, part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. Perfect. Okay. Um, so, hi everyone. This is Jimmy Necco from the band Ours. We have a new record out and a new tour. We will eventually be coming your way, so look out for it. And I'm coming to you tonight from Performance Anxiety. Come, thank you. Thanks for letting me go on. <laughs> just got home a little while ago I need a drink Same Ah What you drinking there? Just some Tempranillo Oh nice Got my This looks really weird But it's a, um, it's a Oh wow It's a grapefruit Hefeweizen From Schaffenhofer You know what? That looks like something I would love to try It is delicious I mean it's basically grapefruit flavored beer it's i mean it's it's not even like you know a hint of grapefruit it's it's freaking super grapefruited up so normally what i like to do is to find out how you got 
interested in music in the first place. And I try to do this somewhat chronologically, but I'm not that good at doing that. So we'll probably bounce around a little bit here and there. No problem. I bounce around anyway, so it's fine. Well, again, thank you so much for doing this. I've listened to the band since uh, Distorted Lullabies came out. And there's, this, and I'm sure you've heard this ridiculous old saying, you could listen to somebody recite the phone book. Your voice is one of those that I could listen to you sing the phone book and I wouldn't need anything else. It's, I, it's just so moving to me. So I really do. I'm very excited to have you on. Oh, thank you. It's my pleasure to do it. So I'm going to drink my beer a little bit more. Or do you, do you drink anything other than beer? Oh yeah. Oh, my, one of my favorite things is, uh, I love bourbon. Yeah, me too. So yeah, maybe, uh, maybe the next one we'll do like, um, pound a couple shots and then see what comes out in the talk. <laughs> Any That's topic correct. you like. Yeah. yeah, come on. I'd love to have you back on. Okay, so, perfect. Yeah, um, we'll do a couple shots and, and talk some other shop. Yeah. From the area code and from some of the things I've seen, you're a Jersey guy. I am. Were you born and raised in Jersey? Born and raised in Jersey, just outside of Manhattan, about about four miles or so from, from the crossing, from the George Washington Bridge. So. Oh, wow. Real- Right outside our, you know, right outside my window growing up, I just look over, see the city. Wow. I, I spent 13 years in Jersey. So, Where at? Uh, Central Jersey, uh, right on the border of Somerset and Hunterdon counties. Mm-hmm. Little place called, the town was called Nishanic Station, real small, but it was in Branchburg Township. Is that, um, is that by Flemington? Yeah. I was like 10 minutes from Flemington and I was exactly in the middle between Flemington and Somerville. Nice. I went to Somerville High School. So, and you know, we're about. We're, I think we're almost. We're the same age. So we may have actually competed in something. Our schools did. It may have anyway. I don't know. I didn't do too much besides football one year and fencing for two. So. Yeah, I think the only competing I did. I used to go to Flemington all the time to race BMX bikes. Ah, oh, that's yeah. How did you get into BMX racing? Um, when I was seven years old, I'd I'd already been doing gymnastics i have three older sisters and um so my older sister had begun to gymnastics and then the next two and then i started so i started gymnastics when i was around four okay and and started to compete and i did that for around i guess three years competed around and then um i don't know something happened my dad kind of introduced me to it a friend of childhood childhood friend of his in our town, his son also raced, so he was telling my dad about it, and my dad introduced me to it. And uh, yeah, it was a, it was a really big part of my life. What Just kind like, of what kind of bike did you ride? Well, I originally started with a big giant uh, Pook, which <laughs> was way too big for me and <laughs> geared too too large for me to even get it around. I would like have to like jump up on it to get it around. Oh man. Then, you know, we got it modified and then I got hit by a car on that bike. Oh my god. <laughs> yeah, right in front of our house I got hit and my bike flew probably around easy to say around thirty yards away. Oh my god. So when that was basically um declared total <laughs> um I got a first of a few torquers that I had. And then, you know, I went on to all different bikes. I had a red line at a point, I had a GT. And eventually I, I ended up, my final bikes were called TNT because I had. A, I ended up getting a factory sponsorship from this this bike company, TNT. So that was my, that, that those were the final bikes that I raced on up oh, until man. I was around 15. 
That's awesome. I had a red line that I, I absolutely loved that thing. And a, a friend of mine had a GT that I was always jealous of. That thing was gorgeous. It was a, one of the chrome ones. Chrome ones? Yeah. yeah. I had a chrome GT. I, I had a white red line. And I was, you know, it was when I was younger, so it was a mini. And um, I loved that bike, too. The geometry, you know, the, the subtleties in the geometry can mean everything for depending how, how big you are, you know, or small. So Oh, for sure. The red line worked really well for me. I had a blue red line. I thought this was funny. It was red line, but it was blue. It yeah. was yellow wheels on it. It was. I got it. But the kid I bought it from used to race it, and then he wanted to get into, uh, like, freestyle and do tricks and stuff. So he started modifying it a little bit and then just like this isn't the bike for this so he sold it and i bought it and just went off like jumps off the sidewalk on it for the rest <laughs> for the rest of its life so but yeah, that was that's kind of life for me like just i knew where all the great driveways were <laughs> yeah through my entire town it's just like where and i would um just daydream about just how i was gonna hit that jump like it was i was pretty obsessive about it i knew where all the the um the sidewalk would end and there'd be a, a big like berm right at the end of it and you hit yep. it just right and it felt like you're like 20 feet in the air you're probably like three but it felt like you're just flying man god that was fun yeah so when did music start making an impact on you and, and taking over where the bmx was well we traveled a lot just all over the country so a lot of late nights in the middle of the country, which is like open road and just black. And I would be my dad's co-pilot and, you know, music spoke for us. You know, we didn't, we didn't talk much. So the radio would be the, the link between us. So driving in between each, you know, each city going out of range from one station to the next and seeing what exciting things that DJ was playing. Yeah. Um, Trying to find but, this, the, the station that would come in. Yeah. And there wasn't funny enough, there wasn't as much country music back then. It was, it was mostly, um, you know, there, would, it was mostly like just normal pop music, I guess, like, um, George Harrison, the, the Lennon stuff, Billy Joel, Elton, Stevie Wonder, that stuff. And then all the like ballads and, and the ballads really made their way into under my skin at that point. I think that's what happened. A lot of late, lonely nights as a child, kind of just looking out, out of the window in the middle of nowhere and locking into the station that was playing the ballad that was like making you really, you know, feel something, whatever it was, some right. sort of um, longing or something, missing somebody back home or whatever it would have been. Um, so that was, a, that was really like, what I remember it really impacted me. I think the first time I, I remember it, it truly getting me. I, I was seven years old and I got, I got my own like boom box that I can record on. And I just remember at that time, like a lot of the Lennon stuff um, was, was being played, you know, on the, on the radio. So things like watching the wheels and, oh, yeah. and woman and um, starting over stuff like that. And so the combination of, I think, discovering his music and then him being assassinated and killed right at that time gave me an immediate connection to the you know the artist and then the the reality of of losing them them not being anymore and feeling the loss yeah. i loved i really really loved elvis presley a lot growing up too at that time okay my mom just adored him so everything was elvis 
Elvis, Roy Orbison, that kind of stuff. So that was kind of early, early years. That and a lot of Motown stuff. Um, that's when we would get kind of, you know, the, the tension in the family would would be relieved basically by a great Motown song coming on, like Supremes or something. And they find my father and my mother both singing along and kind of letting whatever stresses or tensions that were going on just went away. So that was, yeah. that was when I was really seeing the, the wonderful power of, of music. And, and then I, w- I would go roller skating a lot. Oh, okay. I loved to roller skate. And so I would go and spend the entire, when I wasn't racing, usually in the winter time, we could only race. There was a track that we could race indoors on like Sundays. Oh, cool. So, other than that, I would spend all day Saturday roller skating. So I'd go, go for the entire day for multiple sessions. Wow. And so then with that, I started to um, like break dance a bit. So it went from say like a lot of the, a lot of the Michael Jackson stuff, Prince, then into New Edition, Run DMC. Oh yeah, stuff like that. It was more that to me than I, I, I was young. I wasn't really into rock or hard rock or anything like that it was it was more just normal pop music dance yeah. music and a lot of that uh, stuff was on the radio at that time you know yeah uh, sugar hill gang i mean you know that, yep. all that stuff was on the radio so. yeah. i have such a vivid memory of, of the first time i heard that sugar and, and uh oh god mm-hmm. that song jam on it i remember that was huge mm-hmm. uh nucleus yep. nucleus that's who did that yeah really really big at the at the roller rink specifically too oh and god I think, you know, young artists like after Jackson's and, and Michael had already kind of gone up to Thriller. Then there was like musical youth. Oh, I love Pass the Duchy. My wife hates that song. I will play that song and she will literally leave the room. And if my kids want to get under her skin, they'll put it on. Put it on. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it kind of goes on and on. It does. <laughs> and like a lot of the house stuff, you know, um, ooh, Buffalo boys go around the outside, around the outside, a lot of that. And then into like Shannon, just loved Shannon, like oh, give me tonight, wow. let the music play. Wow, um, yeah. And, and Madonna, you know, a lot of the, it just seemed like every song she put out was was great. So it was just, it was just, you know, normal music. I wasn't into anything all that eclectic early on. I loved like um, when I was younger as well, just things like Baker Street is still one of my all time favorite songs. Oh man, yeah. Um, Marvin Gaye, like the whole "What's Going On" record, "Mercy, Mercy," me, like the whole oh, yeah. the whole record. But it was just stuff like that. It wasn't anything all that artsy. That that stuff didn't come for me until probably around like sixteen or so when I started to get into Velvet Underground and uh, the Doors. Yeah, very very heavily into the Doors. So your um, early your early years were informed by WPLJ and WCBS FM. So. Completely. CBS <laughs> FM nonstop. Like all those songs, I, I don't want to get, get too, too into it, but all those old songs from the 50s and the yeah. 60s, you know, like, um, girl, I heard you're getting married. Like all that stuff. Like yes. I knew all of that. Man. So, Did singing or playing an instrument come first? I, I think, well, I did try to sing poorly. I remember <laughs> for show and tell, one year i was probably in second grade so maybe around seven or eight years old i, th- I think i think seven for me in second grade because i started early i remember going in and just having such a that 
I'm I'm pretty shy for the most part and not very outwardly about um, entertaining. Right. But every once in a while, like that, the thing is, I, I think that something hits you where it's almost like you feel a need that you have to share it for whatever reason. Um, and maybe that's just ego or whatever, but I just remember feeling like I need to, I need to go into school tomorrow and, and sing, Cindy, can't you see I'm in misery? Like I needed to go sing it for some reason. Oh, wow. So I remember kind of doing that, which was, um, interesting. So that's probably <laughs> the first time I sang like that. And then, um, I always wanted to, to sing, you know, I was shy about it, but I always wanted to. And then I had a great music teacher who was with us in the grammar school and then went on to the high school who also sang and he wrote his own songs. Oh, wow. And that was really inspiring to me because he made it clear, like, I'm a music teacher, but we have our own band. We, you know, we've made records and stuff. So it was inspiring to me to see that that was a possibility. But really, I started to play the guitar first, like for real. And I just, I kind of got into singing. My sister's boyfriend did the same thing. He wrote and sang his songs and he had given me the advice not to, I mean, and everybody's different. So, you know, this isn't necessarily the right advice for everyone, but he had told me, don't worry about all that, that crazy guitar playing. It's like work on your songs. So that's pretty much what I did. I still would secretly, I was still like figuring out how to do eight finger taps yeah. and like figuring out how to shoot my guitar around my body, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and I remember like trying it over and over again in, in my living room and my father coming in and um, pretty much saying like, Hey, do yourself a favor, you know, <laughs> that's so Jersey. <laughs> uh, do yourself a favor, learn how to play that thing first. All right. <laughs> There was the pressure right then and there to not be a disappointment. Um, <laughs> so I did take my guitar playing seriously, and um, I still do. I, I still um, I play a ton of guitar. I play way more than I've ever let on. Oh, really? Uh, and, uh, oh, yeah. And uh, Because I don't do a lot of it live. Yeah, and the live clips that I've seen, I, I don't know that I've, other than you solo, I don't think I've seen you with a guitar when the band is, the full band is up there. Yeah, and most of the electric guitar that you hear on the records is me playing. Oh wow! Yeah, that's I was because I was gonna ask you about that. We'll, I mean, we'll get to that eventually, but uh, I, I was really impressed by the musicianship through basically through all the R's albums. But I always thought it was a full band. Yeah, well, it it is, and I've still had some great players jump in and play but yeah who've also added something to it you know and, right. and you know made it different than i would have done on my own but sometimes more often than not i would already have the parts written okay and then kind of say okay here's the part but then live i just I, I didn't you know i don't love the with the full band i don't love the idea of just staring at my guitar the whole time i want to i want to be able to connect with people your vocals are so intense. I can't sing or play guitar. I mean, I try to play guitar and, you know, I sing in the car on the way to work, but I, I can't imagine a trying to do both of them at the same time. And then B 
trying to do it with the intensity of the style that you, or the the way that you do your vocals. It's I I couldn't even imagine trying to do both at the same time. It's just eventually, not at first, not at first, but eventually it became equally a, like a part of getting it across to where each time I'm leaning into the guitar, it's it's actually helping me emphasize even the way that I'm singing. Oh, cool. So, yeah, it took a while to get to that point, but that's kind of how, you know, it works for me. But I, so I had started to play the guitar first and I was playing a lot. And we, our first band was actually a, um, funny enough, it was a Black Sabbath Ozzy tribute band. Oh, cool. Because I always loved Ozzy. That was like, that was kind of a given. Well, the, the cool thing about it, full circle, which I'll tell you in a second, but we kept going to rehearse at this rehearsal space in Jersey, Star Studios, and um, the singer just kept not showing up. So the guys, you know, kind of pushed me into it. You know, they're like, Jimmy, do it. Go do it. You can do it. And, um, you know, it, it was a weird experience. There's like... Um, at all those rehearsal spaces, there are mirrors like all over, okay. all around you. So you step right up and you're looking in the mirror, the microphone's there, you're hearing yourself back. And it was an odd experience for me at first, but I stepped up and we actually did a Molly Cruz song. Oh, cool. Like um, on with the show. And I guess at, at that point, everybody realized that somehow my voice can go kind of high. So yeah, that's, that's did basically the end of it and once that happened I, I never we never changed it was just like okay well you're the singer now yeah. now did you know that you could sing beforehand i mean were you aware that it would do any of that stuff no idea no wow. idea just you know just kind of um just like anybody else just you know singing in the car or wherever yeah. but you know it's 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 a big awakening though when you really hear your voice back compared to what you're hearing in your head and you think you sound great. Yeah. When, when you first start hearing it back for the first few times, you know, you take your shot at Great Adventure and you <laughs> go in and you're going to sing a song for your girlfriend and impress her. And then you hear it back and it's like, ooh, that's yeah. <laughs> these, days, these days, people wouldn't know that. And that's part of the problem. They think they sound great yeah. because it just like fixes it right away. But so, so time would go on, funny enough. And it's not a, you know, entirely a full circle moment, but my first record comes out distorted lullabies and i'm playing some solo shows around hollywood and i i'm i play one at the knitting factory and it's you know it's great it's packed everybody's excited the, the feeling in the room is really electric yeah and um i came off stage and my manager said oh, amy osborne's here she wants to meet you so that's ozzy's oldest daughter yeah yeah and i i just remember being so excited <laughs> to meet Ozzy's daughter and I had heard about her as well and I heard that she was really nice and really smart and she is and she's really talented as well so yeah I never even told her that I never even told her how much I loved her dad oh wow but <laughs> but I did get to meet her and it was one of those awesome moments for me because the, the first record had just come out like I said and it's like all of this pretty much because I stepped up to you know we were in an Ozzy band so that's amazing. Oh, that's such a cool story. <laughs> so you're also friends with a, a guy that I absolutely love. And I've, I've got 
a couple albums by him and I'm trying to hunt down more because I can't, I don't know exactly what's out there, but James Hall. Yeah. I love James. I got a chance to see him live one time. Such a bizarre parallel with he and I, because you know, I did fallen souls in 97. It didn't come out until 2001, but I did it. I wrote it in 97 and then 2002, I hear, or 2003 even, I think it was, 2003, I hear Permanent Solutions, and I'm like, oh, that is my brother right there. <laughs> and he hadn't, he hadn't heard my music or anything, but I made it, I really made it my, my, my goal, my ambition to, um, to just let him know that I felt like together we would be better than we were apart. And that that's basically has happened. Um, we've done so much together and I, I love him very much. He is one of a kind, man. Yeah. Man, when he busted out that trumpet, I was just like, this is different. This is going to be awesome. <laughs> yeah. So, but before you even got, we got to that point, I kind of jumped ahead a little bit, but before Distorted Lullabies came out, you had an, uh, another album that came out, but you were, you didn't really care for that one. If I remember, if I was reading yeah, that correctly. I, it wasn't it wasn't really um it wasn't a proper focused album or anything we were just we were just kind of doing demos and our goal at that point was just to try to find try to find where our sound was we we're developing for a few years and recording the entire time in this studio that kind of took us in so the i had played with another group of people after the after like the the Sabbath band kind of turned into our original band called Lost Child, you know one of the silly names of the late eighties. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that band, I felt like okay, we kind of took it as far as we could, and then I started to play with another group of people, three other people, and then me, and so we played together for about five years, and in that time, we were really trying to find our sound and figure it out. So, I, I think that there's. I think that there's like something, you know, charming about the the space when you're trying a bunch of things out and you're experimenting here and there. But the reason why ultimately I'm not, I wouldn't ever call it like an actual release, album release or anything, was because it just felt like we were stop, we were we weren't going to continue playing anymore. So we and we just felt like we should just at least finalize what we had done up to that point and and people were asking us you know you're gonna put it out you're gonna put it out so we just you know we kind of pressed up a bunch of cassettes ourselves you know okay. but we had you know, a company do it but we didn't have a deal or anything and we just i went around real punk rock style to all the record stores in the area and signed you know consignment deals for to sell our cassettes in their store oh okay that was really the only way it was released. So it wasn't, it wasn't a proper release. And, and I know, you know, you're always going to feel like whatever you're working on next is what you're excited about. But 
this this wasn't really one of those circumstances. I just felt like I, I didn't think we should have released it really as it was. Okay. And I was just kind of going with the flow with the rest of the guys because I didn't want to be I was already a, a downer in a sense to them because I was always so hung up on like waiting until we felt it was great. And so my my pace wasn't always in line with everyone else's. Ah, okay. So, you know, some who felt like, no, this is great. You're crazy. We should be putting it out. People should be hearing us. This is awesome. My view was like, I'm not sure if we're there yet. And so I always had a different timeline. So, yeah, I reluctantly agreed to say, okay, well, let's put it out. So that's that's why I feel that way about it. There are some great songs and some great moments, and um, both performance-wise and and so song-wise. Yeah. But I, I would never consider it our, a first, for me personally, I would never consider okay. it a first um, record. The sort of lullabies will always be that to me because it's the first one that I felt like, well, I shouldn't even say this because it's, it's, it's not, I didn't even get the ability to take the sort of lullabies where I wanted to, okay. but it just got to a point of where I, I, I pushed as far as I could within my timeline and, and the budget where we were at. And, and then the label basically said, you're done. Oh, okay. So, but the, the funny thing about it is that it, it kind of gets a rap for taking so long and being this crazy drawn out process, but we only actually worked on the record for three months. Oh, wow. Total studio time was three months. I recorded sometimes after all that on my own in two days. Oh, wow. And same with I'm a Monster. I recorded that on my own with my recording buddy here at the studio. Really? Um, two days. wasn't like we you know went over it so so long to where we were listening to the same things over and over we recorded a, a bunch of the other songs in woodstock and so we did like 14 songs up in woodstock with steve lillywhite oh well, cool we'll be right back after a word from our sponsors i didn't feel like we f we fully realized all of them but the the label had kind of had it with me already. <laughs> and so we, we spent a half a million dollars somehow trying to figure it out. Wow. And I had to, at the end of it, I had to go and spend my own money to really finish the record how I wanted to. Oh so I I paid for sometimes, I paid for I'm a Monster, I produced them. Wow, um, but at amazing. the end of the day, you know, we just had to kind of put out. I would have loved to... I would have loved to have like what I did for I'm a monster and sometimes, and there's a reprise on the end of a song called drowning. Mm -hmm. We did that with, you know, without anybody else on our own, an engineer friend of mine, I would have loved to basically just see every song off to that extent. But that being said, I'm not, I'm not down on it at all. I just, 
I would have I would have worked on certain things for a couple a couple more days each. Okay, it wasn't going to be like a super drawn out thing, but you know, eventually you get to the point of accepting that it's something much different than what you thought it was going to be. Yeah, I've heard that a lot, and "I'm a Monster" is my kid's favorite song. They absolutely love. I put that on; they know immediately. My son will be like, "I'm." They're all teenagers now 16 17 and 18 and my son's just like hey dad what who did that um a monster song like oh ours like cd's right over there go, go ahead and grab it <laughs> he'll go and he'll just listen to the whole thing he he's just so into it uh, that makes me happy because monster was like monster is kind of like my baby i recorded it up in my bedroom on a four track wow acoustic guitar one boom one take acoustic guitar two Left side, right side, boom, one take. Wow. Vocal, SM57, one take. Making up the lyrics as I was singing it. I was just in some space. So oh. all that, like, like all the lies and fantasies I picked to the now. What is right as the lawyers lie down. I was just, like, kind of almost rapping. You, that wasn't done? You, you didn't write that up beforehand? Uh-uh. Oh, my God. I've done a, a couple songs that way through wow. the through the years that I just grabbed the mic, went, and the first thing out of my mouth that that became the record, and it was written right there. That's incredible. But, but now between those distorted lullabies and the first uh, unaf <laughs> the, the first cassette, yeah, the first cassette that was called Sour. You you kind of left the business for a little while, right? You you were, you were out of music. Yeah, because the basically the experience of going through making that cassette and that whole thing kind of soured all of us. And that's why it was a really clever name ah. for the, for the cassette because we just took the S off the end of hours and put it on the front and it was sour. <laughs> Is that when you started working for the phone company after that? Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, but I think that that I, I probably that clever idea with sour it was probably um the guitar player dave's idea because he was pretty funny like that um <laughs> he's clever yeah but that kind of burnt us all out yeah. and then um i just took some some time off i felt like i felt like we had become like too too caught up in our own because to do to do this you have you're constantly just talking about yourself, working on your own songs, I'm constantly singing my own thoughts, and you do it day after day after day, yeah. and it really becomes something where, you know, I think any reasonable, rational person will get to the point of, of saying, okay, I've heard enough of myself, like, yeah, thing else, so... I just felt like I needed some time off and I felt like I needed to go do some service or something. You know what I mean? Okay. It was just give back somehow and help somebody else do what, what they wanted to do and, and get a different perspective other than my own. Okay. So I did, I traveled the country for about six months as a, um, as basically a, a driver, um, and, um, a roadie for a band called Trickster. Hey, more good Jersey boys. Yeah. Uh, Give it to me good. I remember that song. So 
yeah, they're like my family, you know, and so they were they were um, experiencing some success. And, you know, we aspired for that success in our own way. You know, it's at the end of the day, so much of it becomes the same thing. It's just how you dress it up. And we, we dressed our stuff up a bit different than they did. But it's at the end of the day, you're still going for um, songs that are going to move people. So yeah. I, I wanted a break from my own perspective and I needed to, I needed to laugh really. And these guys, they just, they had me laughing <laughs> like the entire time. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, whole different perspective and experience where I would have looked at it and said, I don't want to be anything like that because we wanted to be unique to ourselves. But hanging out with them was a riot. Yes. So you said there was a, a quite a gap between recording and, and releasing Distorted Lullabies. Was that just label issues or was that the issues you were talking about recording and never being fully satisfied or what was going on with that? Okay, I'll try to, I'll try to um, explain that <laughs> as briefly as I can. I took some time off. I, after a couple of years, I found, I found the inspiration and a, and a reason to continue again. And, I, and with that, I felt my spirituality had expanded a bit. My, my maturity had expanded. My respect for others, for myself, everything had, had changed for me. So I, I found a new connection to music and in a way that I felt like I could connect with people rather than just displaying what we did to, to make it like, okay, well, look at us. We're really good. Right. Right. That, I was already, I was done with that. I wasn't ever into that as it was. So I needed to come to a place of feeling like, well, what we're, you know, all kinds of music effects and, and makes people happy. It doesn't really matter. Even if it is super poppy or whatever, it makes people happy. So there's no right answer. But for me, I just, I needed to do something that, that wasn't so barky in the way of like that. This is the way that it is. This is my pissed off perspective. I wanted, I wanted to, to write songs that were, were more about like reaching out to people. Okay. Not, not preachy, not religious, but just about reaching out to people and letting them know that they weren't alone. Like that's, that's where I started to, to feel like I, I wanted to exist in that space. Wow. So I, I wrote a bunch of new songs and, um, basically I put a, a new band together and I had all this, I had the songs written with kind of everybody's parts because I couldn't find a, a set band again. And if you change over and over, you're changing people, the song's going to sound different every time. Right. So I had to, the way I viewed it so that I, I wasn't like stealing anybody's ideas from them. See, people can look at it like it was really selfish of me or, or arrogant to, to like want to write everything. But my intention on honestly was that I didn't want to, I didn't want to jam with people and, take their ideas and then go play it with other people. Okay. I, I, that's what you're I didn't, I didn't feel good about that. So it was important to me that I kind of have everything in place. So, so when somebody would come into play, I would say, okay, well, here's the drum part. Here's the, here's the guitar part. This is the way that it is. So basically after doing things that way, we played a total. I had, I had my buddy sit in on drums for me for about two shows. We played, I think, 
a Continental in New York City and and an Arlene's Grocery. And then then he couldn't do it anymore. And I had somebody else come in and play. And we played a show at the Cooler down in the Meatpacking District. And then maybe two more Arlene Grocery shows. Okay. So a total of five five new shows. And then I walked off stage and a, and a bidding war started for me, basically. Wow. You know, somebody, the, the guy who started all of it is a, a genius named David Kahn. He's How like old were you at this point? I was 23. Wow. Jeez. So, so David Kahn is like a musical genius. He's a producer and composer. He's, he's done so many great records. I walked off stage and he and introduced himself to me and he said, I want to make a record with you. Wow. And... As I mentioned before, my timeline and my way of looking at things, I was luckily blessed with patience and not being, feeling like I need to have all the answers right now. I need this right now. I need this now. Now, that's a blessing that I, I don't know if it's something that I was given or that I worked on it growing up due to <laughs> disappointment, maybe. <laughs> in BMX racing of losing over and over and just that kind of fortitude. Yeah. Uh, but something about my upbringing had me in a place to where I felt like, well, if there's one out there, then there are probably more. So I didn't sign right away. Oh, wow. Okay. And so I played a few more shows and then it just really grew. This, this bidding war got out of control um, to the point of, Rick Rubin on my parents' floor while we're rehearsing, just laying on the floor listening to us. And Rick's a dear friend. I love him so much. Wow. But that's how cool it got, like where Rick is just coming over and yeah. chilling. <laughs> um, that's amazing. You know, the guys from Sony just kind of, Talia Matola, kind of showing up in places where I was, um, that kind of thing was going on. Jeez. So eventually I signed to DreamWorks. So basically once I signed... I went in and I met with, I always thought that I would produce my own records. That's the way that I viewed it. I, okay. And so my, my contract gave me 100% complete creative control. Now wow. it says that, but that's, you know, still like good luck <laughs> finding an attorney that's not in their pocket to get them to enforce that. Mm, uh, it's okay. So you know, you, you, it's like it says that, but I still have to kind of. I don't want to be disrespectful to them either. To to just be like, which some people, some people are and were. Yeah, I wasn't this way. I wasn't like, uh, go read my contract. Fuck off. Right. I was. I wasn't that way at all, and I sh I should have been. Funny enough, but <laughs> I I hope that the people involved can look back on it and at least respect that I respected the relationship the best that I could. Yeah. I still could have been viewed as difficult, but I just wanted to make a great record. I wanted my first record to be great. And I know you just have to take that first step, but I was holding my record up to like what I wanted from it. I was holding it up to Octung baby what's going on wow. songs in the key of life. Like these records to me where I felt like it has to be that good right out of the gate. Wow. I know that those records exist. So if I'm not going to make something that good, just wait, 
just keep working on it until it's that good. I don't, and at the same time, I still wanted it to be, I want it to be raw and, and youthful. I didn't want it to be too mature. Right, right, yeah. So we right away hit a, a wall where the first producer that I met with, who's also now a very dear friend of mine, and I love him very much, I got him Henry Hirsch. Um, Henry had done all the amazing Lenny Kravitz records. Oh, and now, cool. now our stuff, I don't think anybody would ever say that it's like Lenny Kravitz, but there's a, there's a common thing in it where there's honesty in it. And in those early Lenny records, there was this, this thing. Some of the lyrics were a little not for me, but there was, there was something in it that felt like, okay, well, I don't want to make a record like Lenny's at all. Right. Just make that clear. I love what you guys do, but I don't want to make a record like his at all. But there is something in it that's different from other records that I hear. And I, and I think it was an honesty in the sound. Yeah. It, it sounds like, like he pulled the real Lenny out and you wanted him to, to, you know, maybe do the same thing with you. Exactly. Yeah. And so that was our first wall because he felt uh, your band can't play on the record. Wow. And, and he was probably right in some ways to, to make the record on, on a level where he heard, but there are also some really great records made where the band, you know, like those early two records clash records. I also really love the band live yeah. and it's not like any of them are like the most amazing players, but together they have a thing. And that's what I was concerned about. I was like, together we have a thing. And, it worked all summer long. People were freaking out. Right. You know, that you couldn't get in to see us anymore. So there's something going on with the dynamic of, of the four of us. And so I kind of kept holding on to that. I didn't want to let go of my band. Right. Though I, I, knew, I knew we had weaknesses for sure. But any young, any young band, like Rage Against the Machine, they're not going to go in and play like Radiohead. Right. They're not going to go in and, and play like a record like What's Going On, but they're going to sound like Rage Against the Machine better than anybody else sounds like Rage Against the Machine. For sure. And that's what I was fighting for. And I would have thought that my A&R guy would have known that because he signed Rage Against the Machine. He signed Rage. He signed Pearl Jam. So I would have thought that he understood that it's more than just like the best players. Like, let's just get the best out of the people that we have because we have a dynamic together. I think, I think I know the guy. Is it Michael Goldstone? Yeah. Yeah, okay. To, to make it clear, Goldie's brilliant. Yeah. Brilliant guy. And he he's just intense, and I'm intense. Yeah. And he's vague. And I was vague at the time. So our friend Michelle Anthony, who I think she runs Universal still. I also adore her. She, she was Goldie's boss at Epic. So he left Epic to go to DreamWorks okay. to basically take a shot on his own. Kind of had to prove it to them. And it was a little bit of a competition, but I remember Michelle laughing about it when I talked to her because I was, I remember calling her and being like, Michelle, like, he's out of his fucking mind. Like, what's going on? And she started laughing on the other line and she said, oh, this is great. Mr. Vague has met Mr. Vague. <laughs> because I couldn't, I couldn't say what kind of record I wanted to make because it it hadn't been made yet. Right. So what did you say? Like the best I kept saying was, well, I, I love Bowie. <laughs> I love 
you know, I love Marvin Gaye. Uh, like that's, the, I know what I don't want it to be. I know, I knew that I didn't want it to be hard rock. Yeah. I didn't want it to be heavy metal. Not that there's anything wrong with that. I, I love those bands, like I said, but I knew from me that that's not what I wanted to do. Right. It's easy for you to, t- if, if, you know, if you haven't made your album, it's easier for you to, t- to what say- you don't like. Exactly. Much easier, much easier. And so they always viewed that as me being negative. And I was saying, no, I'm, I'm just creating parameters by right. doing that. Right. Um, that's a theme that comes across in this and just about every episode I do is that you need some kind of framework to be more creative. And even if it's a, a framework of what you don't want it to sound like, it's still a framework. Yeah, I, I thought that my original belief was that we would create and exist in our own sound by, funny enough, by creating limitations, which sounds completely counterproductive yeah. because you want to you want to say no, anything's possible. But at times, you know, like when we went in, we did a record which we can get into. It, later that we eventually did record with Rick Rubin and I created boundaries and limitations. I did it cause I, you know, I, I made the record every day in the studio. Right. I made those boundaries with the band. Like, so to one guitar player, I said, okay, so check it out. You won't play from here down. You won't play from here down. I have from here down covered. So anything that you come up with has to be up here. Interesting. So in doing that, I immediately created a sound, a dynamic between us two, because he wasn't going to be down low, chunking away, no palm muting or nothing like right. that. So I knew that by putting him up there, I was immediately creating a sonic space. So that's what I wanted to do on the first record. So I didn't get the opportunity to do that until the, the Rick Rubin record, because Rick said, I love you, I believe in you, go make your record. So once that happened, I... You know, I did that, but that's basically the first record took a long time because so my band's wiped out. I'm told not to rehearse with the band at all. Wow. And so a year goes by and all I'm, I'm kind of sitting around just playing acoustic guitar. So the sort of lullabies, like, like when I got signed, there, there wasn't an acoustic guitar in the building when we played. Oh, wow. It wasn't anything like that, wow. but a year went by. And they told me not to play with the band. So the band was the band was always electric and on fire. And so, you know, we eventually a year goes by, and I'm just I, I've taken all I can take with waiting. So I tell Goldie like, look, I I make a a demo of like four or five songs. I say I need you to send this to these following producers. Here's my list: Steve Lillywhite, John Lecky. Ed Buller. Ed Buller had done the suede records that I loved. Oh, okay, yeah. We sent it to Jerry Harrison, and I met with Jerry, who did um, from the Talking Heads, and he did the live records. Yeah. Made great records with them. And kind of right away, like I went to England, and I, I hung out with John Lecky, who um, done, he, you know, he had done um, the Benz with Radiohead. He did some Verve stuff. He worked on metal with Pink Floyd. Oh. So he went way back I, and I, I just love the sound of his records that was the main thing the, yeah. the sound and it wasn't for me funny enough it wasn't even the songs on the bands which i think are great i just loved this the the sonic space it was like oh man it's so thick yeah yeah and i love that so he was on the list and it, again it was very difficult to pick a producer because i was hearing something that hadn't been done before so i was i would have almost had to pick you know, grab David Foster for the super pop stuff. 
right. or Quincy Jones or something and have Quincy Jones and Brian Eno kind of come together <laughs> and let's go make that record. Wow. If I was going to pick a producer, because from my brain, like I'd be pulling from places like that to make weird combinations of sound. So it was very difficult to, to settle on one. And I think that's what essentially what happened. Steve was awesome and we had a great time, but it was only one piece of the puzzle. So, but by the time we went in to make a record with, with Lily White, it was over a year later after I signed, it was 14 months. Wow. Jeez. And the, you know, that time we only spent three months doing it, but it's actually not even, I think it was, um, seven weeks. Oh, wow. Yeah. Seven weeks. And then we ended up spending an additional month. I did alone, um, in California with another engineer slash producer who I, I recorded a few more songs with, but only two of them made the sort of lullaby. So medication and dancing alone were done in California with a different producer. Oh, okay. Wow. recorded a bunch of my own man and so that process it, it began to take time i went to california i did that i wasn't happy with those songs so that's technically where dreamworks got annoyed with me wow and so then they were like okay well we don't know what to do and they were about to do nothing <sighs> and then i said well i knew i knew my contract i knew that if i handed something in that i said was finished that they had 60 days to give me a release date or some sort of plan. Okay. And if they didn't, then they were going to be in breach of contract. Ah, okay. So I handed it in. I worked on it a bit more. I basically took final mixes from Lily White and I, I dropped them to multi-track and I recorded over his stereo mixes. I recorded all the extra guitars and the drums and the percussion, the background vocals that I wanted. Wow. And I remixed it and I handed that in and I said, now I'm finished. Your move, you got 60 days. And um, I also recorded I'm a Monster in that time. We didn't have, I didn't record sometimes yet because I played it for both Lily White and Goldstone and neither one thought that it was any good. Oh, really? So we never recorded it in Woodstock oh. and, and Goldie never thought of it to be like, okay, that's the song. So it wasn't technically on the record at that time. Oh, geez. I hand the record in. They wait basically 60 days. They wait the whole time. Finally get back to me. And Goldie was, you know, Goldie and I were pretty cool at this point. And he said, like, really, what do you want us to do? Seriously. Oh, God. And I said, here's what I would like you to do. I would like you to take the additional overdubs that I've done on my own. And I knew that he liked his guy out West and the guy out West, Mark is a great engineer. I love the sound of his stuff. Right. Um, Mark Ender. I said, have Ender drop everything that I did into pro tools over the original masters. 
let him remix the record. Okay. And basically that's what we did. That took another four months. So now we're way up over two and a half years oh or whatever. God. We, we get to the process of finishing that, which, which basically included bringing me back in to say, okay, well, help me, help me mix this. Like, what, what do you think should, yeah. should go on? We got there and then Goldie said to me, okay, so I need you to figure out what kind of record you want to have here. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, you don't really have a single on the record. He said, it's a great record. It's a great record, but you don't have a single on it that we can run with. Oh, and I said, okay. I said, well, you know, we didn't, we didn't come this far just to stop now. Right. So, so let's go. Let's, let's record something else. And he said, okay, sh let's see what else you have. And my buddy, during this time, I started to play every week in a coffee shop up the street from me. And I was playing sometimes. And my buddy kept screaming at me each night. Like, <laughs> he was very loud. He kept <laughs> Dude, I'm telling you, that's your fucking single. <laughs> and um, I was so defeated by the business side of it, not necessarily by the creative side, but by the business side, because when you do something that you really, really believe in and, and you're like behind it, and then this, you know, these business people who supposedly know better tell you that it's not happening yeah. you just go like what do you want me to do like what else can i say or do they i played it for everybody they, and they didn't like it yeah so but i said okay well let me try one more time and i played it for goldie again and he said that's the song Kidding me? Yeah, I didn't. I didn't. I didn't rub his face in it too badly. I was like, <laughs> because I, I don't want to break his chops. Like I, I really wanted it to work with him. And I, yeah. So I said, I played it for you like three years ago. <laughs> ah. And like so, I've been I've been sitting for three years. I, I ah. you know, the same week that you. You know, signing me, you signed Buck Cherry, Rick Rubin signed System of a Down. They all have platinum records already, and I've been sitting waiting. And, you know, Rufus Wainwright as well, I signed the DreamWorks because I, Rufus was there, and I love Rufus. And, like, everybody's killing it. And, you you know, I just felt like, man, you've made me wait this whole time for what? Yeah. For a but song that you played him three years ago. Yeah. But we didn't get too into that. What I did instead of arguing with him was I went and recorded it immediately. Okay. This upset him because he felt like, well, we're supposed to have a conversation about it and you were supposed to pick a producer and like, we're supposed to go do it right. And I, I basically said to him, look, after I recorded, I'm a monster. The only way for me to record my music is for me to record it. I, I, it became clear to me, like, like nobody else can record my music. Like I can have, I can have a great team uh, with great engineers and great 
talented song people and sound painters, but nobody was going to be able to tell me how to get where I wanted to go. I had to figure it out. I had to take that journey. Yeah. So basically that's what happened. I, I recorded it with my, with my buddy. Um, and the reason why we were able to glue the whole record together, if like people go, wow, you recorded that over a series of, of time with different places and all different players. How do you make it sound like one record? Yeah. There's only one logical explanation for how I make it sound like one record. I was, I was guiding everyone to exactly where I wanted them. That makes I sense. I produced the whole, the whole thing. I produced Steve Lillywhite and I love him dearly, but that's really what happened. I produced Lillywhite. He didn't produce me. I produced Mark Endert. They yeah. thought they were producing, but the reality is that at the end of it, the big picture, I was still producing all of it, but they, they just wouldn't have that. Like the label would not let that be the case. So right. I knew that was going to be the deal. So I didn't care anymore. And I said, whatever, just put it out, call it whatever you want. Say, Say whoever did what. Right. I got sometimes to where I wanted it. It worked. It went right to radio, went right to MTV. So at that point, I was like, I don't care who gets the credit for it. I know I know what I did. Yeah, you know it. It's out finally. It's People out. hear it, and, and you know the work that went into it and who did yep. what. One of the, the really cool things I just discovered, actually, about this is that the single has a cover on it of Bohemian Rhapsody. A couple of years later, you actually ended up playing with Brian May hmm. on the Spider-Man soundtrack. That I mean, that had to be pretty, pretty surreal. Yeah, that was that was nuts because um, Alan and Chris had written the song. Yeah, Alan Johannes and Chris Cornell. Yeah, yeah, um, both of them just brilliant. Yeah, and I, I don't know if if Natasha was in on it or not as well. She may have been in the writing. I'm, I'm not sure. I'd have to really look at it. But Rick Rubin had called me and said, we're doing a soundtrack for um, Spider-Man. And Chris Cornell had, had written this song, but he's already singing a song on it with Audio Slave that we're doing. Uh, and so we're, we're sitting around the table with everyone and, and everyone's saying, okay, well, who should sing it? Eddie Vedder or something like that. And, and Rick said, there's only one person on the planet to sing the song. So he fought for me. Awesome. And then... Yeah, so then we went to record it, and we didn't have like a guitar solo or anything like that. That was all Rick's Rick's doing to, oh, wow. to make it perfectly clear. So he, as I produced all our stuff, Rick clearly produced that song. Clearly, right. like that's that's Rick. You know, like Rick did walk this way. Like his mind, he did that, and he was completely responsible, basically, for everything with the recording of that song other than really how I sang it and all, you know, the time that I put into it doing the, the things that I wanted to do. But at, so at some point he said, I'm thinking about asking Brian May to play on it. And he said, if Brian can't do it, 
Rivers said he'll do it because he was also producing a lot of Weezer stuff at the time. Okay. And I was like, oh, man, either would be great. I like, I love how both of them play guitar. Yeah. Never really pushing that I play guitar and I could probably bang out <laughs> a, a, a probably solo similar, not necessarily as good, but similar in style to Brian's because that's how I play. Oh, okay. If you listen to any like the lead stuff on our records, which I don't put a lot on, but when it's more like lead stuff, that's me playing. So I, I Brian's like one of my favorite guitar players. Uh, you know, Brian, Prince, The Edge. Oh, yeah. For me, you know, obviously like Jimmy Page and stuff and Keith Richards, unbelievable rhythm player. Oh, yeah. But for me at that time, it was it was pretty much like Brian May. And I never told that to Rick. He just... Wow. He just knew. So he he worked it out. Brian played on it. And I had already, I already sang on it. And so then Brian played and the moment his guitar went on it, I just felt like, oh man, I, <laughs> I have to re-sing this entire thing. Oh. oh, wow. Yeah. So just to give you an idea again, Rick is on the same timeline that I'm on as far as quality control. He said, whoa, whoa, whoa. what are you talking about? Your, your vocal is unbelievable. I always have to talk a little bit like him when I say it because <laughs> I, I just I love him so much that it's it's funny to me, and uh, that's kind of what I do. But uh, <laughs> and I said, thank you, but I, I I just I have to I I have to do it again. So I did, and I, and I went and I spent to get back in. By the time I can get get in, it was a, a period of another week. I went back in, sang it. I did a bunch of other harmonies. What I did basically was push for breaks in my voice. Uh, I, I felt like the first one, funny enough, was too clean. Oh, really? I, okay. Yeah, and I get shit for it, for even like, it's so funny to see people arguing about whose is better, Chris's or mine. Yeah. And everybody, you know, like some people think mine is beautiful, as clean as it is, and some people are just like, that's not rock. Yeah. Um, but I made a clear choice to not, because Chris's was powerful already, but I, I made a choice to not go, someone to die I, I made a point to not do that because that's what he was already doing. So I, I kept thinking like, just like think Stevie Wonders. It's like Stevie Wonder placement, you know? Okay. So like Stevie was like, you know, singing up, up here like, what happened to the world we knew? Like, so I just kept thinking like, as I'm singing, Someone. Like, like place it all up where Stevie would place it. Oh, that's fascinating. Not go into like rock. Like okay. I didn't want it to be rock. So I, but I was still pushing for like little things to break a little bit more. Okay. Uh, and I got a, a few human moments in it where it broke.
okay, that feels better to me. There's, there's more of a human element to it. It wasn't pushing to make it perfect. It was, it was pushing to make it more human. Yeah. And, and like, like in a performance, you know, like I was losing control, you know? That's awesome. I... But we missed it. So we missed the deadline to get the song in. It was supposed to be in the movie. Oh. <laughs> and lo and behold, um, so check it out. Some people, and I go through this all the time with especially modern day culture with social media and everything, yeah. um, with immediate quick fix and um, auto-tune and all that. So we missed the deadline. It didn't get in the movie. So some people can look at that and be like, what the fuck is wrong with you guys? Are you insane? But how Rick and I looked at it was like, so what? It didn't make it in that movie. It's right. We took the time to make it right. So the potential for it could live on for years and years and years to come. And that's how I've always looked at it. So sometimes, yes, you miss that opportunity. But if you truly believe in what you're doing, as I did going way back, I, did, I wasn't in a rush to put Sour out. I believed that we would eventually get that opportunity to make our proper first record because I believed in what we were doing. Yeah. So it was amazing. Brian just literally took the whole level up on it. And when I first heard it, you know, funny enough, I'll, I'll say this, and if people listen this far into this podcast with, <laughs> with, with all the talking that I've done, um, when I first heard it, I felt like it sounded phoned in to me. Okay. Because it was so good that I was desensitized like to how, how accustomed I've become to hearing Brian May. Mm -hmm. It sounded so Brian May to me that I didn't feel like it was connected to what I was singing and the way I was. I just felt like, oh, well, he kind of did Brian May on it. Oh, okay. I see what you're saying. Yeah. And so, because like, like, I'm kind of funny like that. I'm kind of a cynical prick <laughs> in ways. So that was my first reaction. It was like, oh, kind of sounds phoned in. What? And I told that to Rick, and he was like, really? <laughs> and I said, let me listen again. <laughs> and I listened again, and I called him back. I said, no, 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 no. We're good. We're yeah. good. We're good. I was wrong. <laughs> it's amazing. Oh, man. You, you put out a couple al albums after Distorted Lullaby, so Precious. Some incredible tracks with like Kill the Band. I love that song. I absolutely love that song. which has one of my favorite songs that, that you have ever recorded, Ran Away to Tell the World. I love that song.
Now, were you touring a lot during this time and, and playing out, or were you just kind of working more on the writing side? Or We toured a ton. And I, again, the problem was that they pushed me right into making Precious. And even though I love Ethan Johns very much, like solid, solid person, I, I love him dearly, insanely talented as well. Again, I felt like, what does that have to do with the record that I want to make the way that I want to make it? Right. But because I really hit it off with him when we talked, I said, okay, well, let's go make this record. The record at the end of the day was nothing like what I thought we were going to make. I thought we were going to kind of pick up from where sometimes left off and expand upon that. I, I knew that I wanted it to be a little more raw, but I, I thought that as far as sonically as being lush and, and shiny, I thought that, and not shiny and clear, because I would have made Kill the Band, I would have, if I did it on my own, I would have had those guitars so saturated, and the vocals saturated. I envisioned just like oversaturation for that entire record. Oh, really? Okay. That, I named it Precious, because, I, it, you know, I was just being sarcastic about it. So Precious, I think, has some great songs, um, though I would take the entire record and push it through, push it through a Fairchild or something and crank it up at this point. Yeah. <laughs> so then we got into Mercy. I, I'd kind of had it. I, I kind of had, like, I can't do this anymore. And I started to make the record on my own. And then we worked it out so that Rick could do it with me. And oh. he promised me, uh, he promised me that I would basically be able to do everything that I wanted to do and exactly how I wanted to do it. And he did not lie. He was amazing. Such a great partner in the record. But so Runaway to Tell the World, that was basically the heart of the record. I, I knew I had Runaway to Tell the World and I was going to build a record around that song. Oh, cool. And I had so many songs, it could have gone, it could have gone many, many different ways, but it was basically like, what's going to fit with Runaway to Tell the World? What other songs would fit on a record with Runaway to Tell the World? Because to me, that was, that was the one. And, and I spent just about $50,000 of my own money mixing that song. Wow. After I mixed it over and over, I sent it to people where it was basically a $10,000 mix where I turned around and threw it straight in the garbage oh wow that's how important that song was to me for the record it's it's my favorite on the, on the album it's just it's a very unique sounding song I, I don't even know how to describe the way it sounds you just have to hear it so you ended up working with rick rubin to get this album to get mercy done i know you wanted to get him in on the, the first one was this the experience that you were hoping hoping to have with him was it was it everything you'd, you'd kind of figured it would be yeah it was it was pretty much perfect so after Mercy, there's a, a bit of a gap, and you released a, a, a solo, a Jimmy Necco album, The Heart. And what made the change from ours to a Jimmy Necco album? Well, basically, again, which is something that I've never talked about, just but just to make it, if anybody gets this far, you've, you've earned this. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, basically, as ours, I was, I was signed as Jimmy Necco. As a, as a solo artist. Oh, okay. I decided to call it ours because I wanted, I still really, I, I believed in a sound that was going to be bigger than just me alone. 
I, I was really shooting for something that you can, you would really feel the, the collaboration around it would be bigger than what I had imagined on my own. Okay. So that was part of the, the journey as well, like continuing to try to get there, finding the right musicians and stuff to where it was, we were getting it better than, than I can do on my own. I think after Mercy, it was just finally time. I had tons and tons of these more stripped down songs. Okay. And I'd been playing a lot of shows the entire time through that, like I was always playing solo acoustic shows and people kept asking over and over and over again for me to record that record that way. That's how they wanted to hear the songs. Ah, okay. Walking beside you dream. When you wasn't just to give you dick this is the insight you know because people at times look at it the opposite way is to to kind of look like i'm a control freak and that's that's not it's not you know you can't easily just dismiss it as that because that's not the, the truth i am always very concerned about everybody else and including them in the process and respecting them very much. I go to great lengths if I was to really dissect it and tell you how I have done that through the years. But this is one example. If I was going to make a solo record, like this is how nuts I am about it in genuinely trying to not take advantage of anybody else. I felt like if I'm going to make a solo record, I have to play everything on it for wow. it to truly be called a solo record. Wow. That was just my view. And I'm not saying that that's right, because I don't know anybody else that's done that. Prince, maybe, I don't know. Yeah. I, maybe, I don't know, but to, like, to play everything on it that was going to be on it, maybe McCartney, I don't know. Yeah, uh, yeah. But that's the way that I felt, because the moment that you kind of get into the conversation, the music conversation with a player, Yes, it might be my idea, but something about them, they bring their personality to it. Yeah, it's influencing and, you. Yeah, in that moment in time, it's not exactly how I would have done it, even if it was my idea. And so that is part of the vibe of ours, and well beyond that, just as, as far as the, the, the audience is concerned, that's part of ours. But I just felt like it was time that I make that acoustic record, and then I got into doing it and I put acoustics down and then I felt like, oh, maybe I should put some drums down on some of this stuff. And then I started to fill it in. It just felt like it was time to do that. And, um, okay. yeah, I, I didn't have, I didn't have these wild aspirations to like go and, you know, it, it wasn't like Justin Timberlake or, or George Michael leaving their bands and saying, okay, I'm going to go really, really blow up as a solo artist. That wasn't, in my head at all honest to god at all it was more like my thought was this is going to be under the radar of a vibe okay 
and it's going to be more of a personal experience than it than it's about me going to make this big successful shiny record you know oh, okay so, so it's less of a of a look at me kind of album is and more of a like you're saying under the under the radar thing so it was it wasn't an ego trip no no it's just like to to genuinely serve this space that i was creating on these acoustic shows which was which was an incredibly personal experience for me and the audience together. And I just wanted to honor that. And the best way I felt to honor it all around was to, to just do it myself. And yeah, quite honestly, I, I didn't have delusions at all or even the ambition. If I had the ambition to make it a, um, you know, like a, a big pop sounding record, I I could have easily just done that the same and I could have played the instruments differently and I could have played different parts and done it that way that wasn't the goal at all it was really to just like to really do something as as personal and pure as as humanly possible that's why I was the heart because I was just like I felt like I'm opening myself up to you and, and giving you my entire heart here now, how did you get hooked up with aha and opening for them because that was um, around this time right around the same yep, time yep I'm old friends with Paul Waktar who oh, wow. yeah who's the um guitar player and writer of of most of the stuff there in aha and um I met him years ago before I had signed with DreamWorks. I think you know everybody. Well, you know, I, <laughs> I, uh, my biggest, my my biggest ambition with, for the longest time was to just be around the other artists, and to try to get the the um, the love and respect from other artists. So that that's been some of the coolest things to me on the planet of just getting to work with different people or sit in a room and pick their brain or hear what they were thinking. That's you why know, I so do that, this podcast. Yeah. So that's, that to me was basically, that was the reward. Like this, this is the coolest thing I'm getting <laughs> to sit in a room right now and like, and talk. My buddy came and played acoustic guitar. He played a little bit of electric on the sort of lullabies, but mostly acoustic guitar, a hero of mine in Boz Bora, who is Morrissey's guitar player the whole time and, and writer. He writes, been writing from with Morrissey from the beginning and he's been Morrissey's guitar player from the beginning. Oh, okay. And so I love, I love Morrissey's stuff. So that was another blessing to just be able to have Boz come out and play with us on the first record. Going to, uh, well, I guess opening for AHA ended up resulting in a band, Weathervane. So you're leaving on a plane to somewhere So you're going song for um, a movie in Norway called Headhunter and okay. we had planned on doing a lot more Paul and I but I think we hit just like a different philosophy I, th I think Paul wanted me to, to just more so sing as he wrote the songs and I wanted to 
I wanted to write with him. I wanted to, it was going to be my first real um, voyage into co-writing on, you know, because up to that, that point, I'd pretty much written everything myself on yeah. every record. Yeah. And it was, I was looking forward to writing with somebody else, that process. Yeah. And um, so that's what I wanted that band to be. But he just felt like it should be more like he writes and I sing. And I said, well, you know, I'm, I'm not really interested in doing that, but you should hear my daughter's voice because she's, I think you'll really like it. And he did. And she ended up doing a band with him. Oh, really? Songs that he wanted me to sing, a bunch of them. My daughter ended up singing and they had a band together and she, and she went over to Norway and played some shows with him and, and they did a project together. Oh, cool. What, what was the project? It was basically their names is Waktar and Zoe. That's what it's called. Okay. Yeah, I mean, she's she sounds so beautiful. You know, it's, I mean, we have similarities with our voices, but she's entirely her own artist. Oh, um, is music something she's pursuing professionally? She's yeah, she's still working on stuff, just trying to uh, see where she wants to be with it all after that project. That's fantastic. Is that a recent thing that she she did, or is, was that has that yeah, been just, a few years? It's just a few years ago. So, you know, we lost, we just lost a, a year and a half or so to with COVID and stuff. So yeah. that kind of put more distance between it, but it wasn't that long ago. I did hear that you did something that I, I want to hear, but I can't find it. You did a cover of Big Country for a Coles commercial. Yeah. There are a few surprises out there that I kind of try to keep. I don't know. I mean, <laughs> Should I edit yeah, that part out? <laughs> yeah. No, no, it's okay. Because I think because, that is really cool. Yeah, you know, what happened was the, the studio that I'm in right now and that we've made all of our last records with, and, and, and I even did the first record, The Sour Thing, here, and, and I did so much of the sort of lullabies after the fact here in this studio you know, with Sometimes, and I'm a monster, like I said. Because there's a studio and there's a house up above it, and I lived in the house. Okay. I've been here for over 30 years. Wow. And so at times, they, they also they had a jingle company. And so things would come in here and there that they would run by me to see if I wanted to do them. And if, and if they weren't too much of a, of a stretch where I was going to have to jump through hoops and play that game, I just wasn't, I wasn't ever going to play that game. It was a slimy, slimy game. The, those jingle fuckers, man. Really? Yeah, they're just disgusting. If you think the music business was bad, like the jingle business was just like everybody that couldn't really make it in the music business making records went into jingles and to rip everybody's songs off. And the whole thing of like, they're supposed to get other people to come in and do the songs. So they have to fake like they do and wow. present demos, but they're just pushing for themselves because if they, if they get one themselves, they can buy a house at that time with the money because the residuals were crazy. Wow. So it was super slimy. So I, I wasn't really into like 
constantly jumping through hoops when they would ask because I felt like you're just asking me to do a demo for you so that you could steal my ideas and use it for your own. So fuck off. Wow. But this one, I felt like, okay, yeah, I can do that. I, I know, like I can, I think I can knock that out of the park. So I just did this acoustic version of Big Country and it worked and Coles picked it right up. And um, yeah, we never said it was me or anything, but it was playing all around the country. And I remember people, you know, the internet wasn't in full, full swing just yet. So, yeah. but I remember that people out there saying, oh man, I, I know that's Neko. <laughs> Man, I yeah. want to hear that. I don't, God, I gotta. I wouldn't even know where to find it. Believe it or not, it's not on YouTube. At least not that I can find it. So. There are a lot of things that I've done, like under the radar, that are kind of floating around that are wild that people wouldn't think that I, I would do. And normally, I wouldn't. I wouldn't bastardize our music and just like try anything gimmicky or anything like that. But right. every once in a while, something comes up that it's like. Oh yeah, yeah. I would be into doing that. Like friends of mine were doing an EDM song and they, that's what they do. And they wanted me to do it. And I said, I like dance music more than I like rock music. Like, absolutely. That's not even a question for me. So we did this song and it was like, it ended up like blowing up and it was on the, uh, it was on the billboard charts for like a year. This EDM song. Is that the, is that stellar? Yeah. Okay. haven't gotten into that so but i'll have to give it a shot it's you know i mean it's a lot of the same i'm not over the over the moon about edm particularly um (laughs) but uh, there was a time you know like right after mercy that i was talking with tiesto and i went and met with him and i was trying to write a bunch of things for him and i just kept sending him you know, idea after idea. And he would say, you're writing too much, man. You're writing too much. Like, cause I write entire songs. Wow. <laughs> yeah. I was, I was looking to like, just get in a little bit with something on the dance tip. So oh, that's awesome. And with ballet, the boxer, that's a part one of a trilogy that you were working on. And this is where I get a little mixed up with some things. So ballet, the boxer is part one. And then New Age Heroin is part two. Is the new album part three or was one of the EPs that came between part three? The new one is technically part three. Okay. And yeah, it's a little confusing in certain ways because what started to happen with these three stories, there started to be like these sub stories that were like kind of falling off that I was like, oh, wow, well, that's the space. That's the dark space between Ballet the Boxer at the end of the record fall into my hands or it's just basically this descent to hell.
that's the dark space that I didn't necessarily want to make an entire record like that. Okay. So let's, let's devote uh, an EP to that. Okay. And then there was another EP after new age heroin called media age. Yes. And so just the same there, that's kind of the transition from, um, from that space into this, this final chapter. So what's the overarching theme of the trilogy? It's, well, it's basically um, following whoever the, this, this character would be, if the character's name is actually Ballet. It's basically me going back and, in a weird way, you know, like people always thought that, that the records were like autobiographical, like the songs that I was writing, um, because they were so personal. Yeah. But they weren't really always about me. They were just about things that I had absorbed from from other people around me, and that's what the name of the band was. Ours. I was, I was. Um, I noticed early on that I was um, a little extra empathetic about things, and I would, I would feel people's pain a lot, you know. And so, I found myself like putting it into songs early on, and so basically. It's a series of records kind of going back and telling the actual story of what was happening in a sense with me during that whole thing, which is the arc of somebody growing up a certain way and an existence to where they had to kind of literally fight, physically fight all the time to exist, to survive in an environment where it was physical and nonstop bullying and literally terrified to go to school every day. Wow. So starting with something like Ballet the Boxer, where I felt like, okay, I gotta, I have to like literally punch my way out of this situation into the period of where I would look at New Age Heroin for the most part of a, of a summary of my existence in the, in the music business. I won't let them beat you, you'll be and that chapter of life and then this final one which is why i took a bit is because i had to i had to live a little more of the time okay in order to be able to to write it but if i was to, to parallel it it's just the, the story of somebody growing up through um, some difficult times, doing the best to make the most of it, um, having a total change of existence when, when my first child was born, turning my life around, entering into a new chapter of where my new spiritual views would be heavily, heavily challenged by capitalism. Okay. And that kind of existence to where, yeah, my spirituality would be challenged on a daily basis to be able to exist in the capitalist existence there. And then hopefully writing a happy ending to all of it, 
which was which you know was like really coming into my own through all of it and basically taking a really really hard fall and crashing and burning again oh, well. and then figuring out the ways again to put those pieces back together okay. for a, a wow. final hopefully something that feels inspired and um triumphant in a sense of the spirit of the human spirit that was going to be how i described it was it, it the entire album does sound triumphant i saw a performance of some of the tracks from 2019 and it was going to be called spectacular sight but now it's, it's self-titled was there a reason for the shift or did it did the uh, album get more work done while the pandemic was going on and you, you just you had time and knowing what I've, what I've learned about you fiddling with it some more and making it more and more what you were looking for. Yeah. I tried to take all the good that I could from what was happening as horrible as it, as it was for everybody right. in that time, I, I tried to make the most of the time and um, it just, the only way I could explain it is like it just didn't feel it didn't, it didn't feel like just spectacular sight to me anymore. It felt like it was, if I had to say where there was like one, one record that people are going to put on and say, okay, I, I, I want to hear one record that shows me the entire arc of what this is about. And I felt like, and I do feel like this record has been able to do that where we, we covered everything other than it, you know, you know, like real dance music, which I really love, you know, Donna Summer, um, Bee Gees stuff, ABBA. You know, I don't feel like we fully got to that space. You do have some good beats on there, though. You yeah, you know, really I, good beats. I gave in to, you know, it's a basic thing. And, and you, you'd think that it would be from everything that I talked about from, from the moment we started tonight about saying the music that I liked early on with roller skating and all that, yeah, you would think that I would have been a little more on rhythm section kinds of driven records. But I, I also rebelled against that for a long time because I felt somebody said to me a long time ago, a friend of mine, um, he said, don't you get it, man? It's about the beat. It's about the beat. And, uh, and I heard him loud and clear and I, I kind of resented it and I just felt like, well, I'm not going to make it just about the beat. So for years, that's why some of the songs were a little more sluggish and brooding. Right. Okay. And so for this last, I think for both, um, I think new age heroin and like both of the EPs and this record. I really just gave in to saying, okay, let's really make the drums grooving. Well, that's one thing I was going to ask you, starting with New Age Heroin up to the new album. I've noticed that the drums are a much bigger presence and not necessarily volume wise, but their presence is felt a lot more. I mean, sometimes with uh, certain songs like um, Gold, You Are the Answer, If There's Love. I mean, those just, well, I mean, Gold actually. Gold, uh, the beat is amazing. It sounds like there's, once the drums kick in, it sounds like Animal from the Muppets just in the background, but doing an insane drum solo the entire time. It's, it's, I love it. Sounds in the breeze. 
Cancer and If There's Love, that they're a lot more up front in the mix, but Gold, they're a little more behind, but they're definitely noticeable. Yeah, I just really made sure of it. I, I played, I didn't play the drums on Gold. Uh, Chris did, who's our, our drummer, been our drummer now for the last, I don't know, I guess like five or six years now, we've been working with this current band and building this library of songs, okay. this catalog. But some of them, you know, I, I kind of had and I and I would go and play. So I played drums on like If There's Love and Bring It On. Oh, I played wow. drums on Control, You Are The Answer. Wow. You know, I'm going to like, uh, say on New Age Heroin, like Pain Aside and Fly, things like that. So yeah, it is important to me all around to really make sure that this time that I wasn't, I wasn't being, um, just like spiteful about it with, with the grooves that <laughs> I really wanted the drums to affect people and the bass, the bass on a lot of this stuff as well, because our, our bass player, Carmelo, he's just a monster, total monster player. And, um, then I had my buddy PJ play bass on you are the answer. Who's also a monster player. My friend Robert from Stone Temple Pilots played bass on on uh, one song that's on one of the EPs, Believe, and it's a little difficult to hear the bass because it's so in like this constant tom groove. But if I solo the bass out on that, you'd be like, man, he is killing it. Wow. So yeah, we just really made sure that the, the rhythm section had a strong presence on the last few things. That is how I wanted to do it, believe it or not. That's, that's how I, I heard um, the sort of lullabies and precious. And that's why for me, I, I feel, I feel a little lacking because I, when I would make a drum part up like fallen souls and I make up the do, 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 I want to, I want to feel the drums like we do on so like you are the answer or if there's love, I want to feel them like that. And to me, like personally, I felt like they were mixed back. Oh yeah, for sure. Especially compared to the songs on the, on the last two. I mean, it's, yeah. That's for sure. I mixed it all too, though. So that's the difference. I mixed all these records now. God. And so I'm making sure that what I wanted to hear back then, like I'm hearing. So this was my chance to, I'm not turning my nose up at those, at the last records, at the older records. There's, there's some great things in them. And if they make people feel something from them, or bring them to a time, that's great. But it was my, to finally say, this is the way I wanted the drums to sound. All right, I've got to ask you a question because I've noticed something between Distorted Lullabies and the new album. You've got a thing for butterfly legs. What is the connection with, with you and, and butterfly legs? Because I'm a monster and don't lose yourself. It's an interesting a visual, in, interesting piece to have in there. Is, there. is there something behind legs of a butterfly? Someone's not it's not specifically like something that i am you know butterflies all over or anything it wasn't that it was that monster just it happened it came to me because i was really getting annoyed with the reality that 
um, like what the lyrics are saying that like lawyers that lawyers were winning cases just because they were good lawyers and it wasn't the right thing to do. And I was like really getting frustrated. Like that's not right though in life. Right. So that was my frustration with that song that I said, as the lawyers lie down to the sound of a broken man clinging to the legs of a butterfly. I'm just saying that this is a, a very, very pure broken person. He, and just, he's just holding on for dear life as he's trying to grow and, you know, become a butterfly and, and grow in life and become whole. And he's doing the right thing, but this whole system is bullshit. So that was my way of just talking about, you know, lawyers slash liars, lawyers, liars, lawyers, liars. So that's what I was saying is the lawyers lie down to the sound of a broken man clinging to the legs of a butterfly. So I purposely brought it back to close the entire chapter and it's, and it may very well close the chapter of ours with us. And so that's why, again, calling it ours, it may very well be the final hours record. Oh, wow. So I wanted to just basically sew it up. Come full circle. Yeah. There are a couple references when I went back and I kind of touched upon things, but it's, it's not a specific, it's not a specific thing in my life. Like I said, where I'm, you know, I've got an obsession over butterflies, but that particular idea i was just in in the sense of of the record feeling triumphant i was saying we caught the legs of the butterfly okay and basically we got up and over the walls and the walls and the walls came down so that's what i'm saying don't lose yourself it's just kind of referencing back to saying it happened you know like that we grew um we developed we grew and we came into our own and we caught onto the legs of the, of the butterflies. It took us up and over any of the walls of the emotional walls, the mental walls that were stopping us before, you know? So yeah. the sort of lullabies is, is like a record that talks about some of those struggles of, of that time when you're teen years and then into your early twenties, where you're trying to f- figure everything out and everything is just so intense. Yes scrambled and so this I, I felt like the sort of lullabies was a great representation of that time where it wasn't necessarily offering answers it was just raising questions and observing the landscape okay. you know and so with these songs and this record it was very much more now from the perspective of i've lived i've lived this experience and this is what i've this is what i've come to to know from it and it's still not gospel and it's not it's not law but this is my experience and i'm confident of it and so that's why i reference back to the butterfly that's amazing i love that i love, I love that you brought it full circle I mean, i've kept you for a while i've got a couple more questions if you don't mind i, I don't want to take your whole night so okay your voice is just as powerful now as it was on distorted lullabies but I know that there's a lot of singers out there whose voices have deteriorated and, and over time, it, you know, it, it happens. What do you do to take care of your voice? Because the way you sing sounds like it's taxing to it. Like it would, you, you could easily shred your voice, but obviously you haven't. What, what do you do to protect it? Well, I, I, I destroyed it on, um, See, before Mercy came out, we toured, we started to tour Mercy around 2006 and we did shows before it as well in 2003 and four and some songs like Live Again and Black 
and lost, live again mostly, just shredding, shredding my voice night after night. Yeah. Like last night of my life, every night on stage. That's the way that it was. I done serious damage to my voice. I, I I didn't I didn't have it looked at to see if I had any nodules or anything. I just I just knew how it felt and it felt not good. So I, I think I just started to slowly nurse it back again and really began focusing on preserving it and and singing you know, singing wise, I felt like I sang properly up to that point. But when you're shredding like that, there comes a point where it's certain like reckless abandon. It's like, you, there's only so much you can do it properly. Right. So for so many of the big notes that seemed like they were tough, they weren't too bad. But some of this, the screaming and stuff then made it real difficult to do anything um, to really even connect lower like in, in my crossover spot became really difficult oh wow okay so i spent years again just being cautious and retraining it and trying to figure out a lot like my diet was completely messed up oh really something was just happening where i couldn't sing it was like some bizarre you know like i was laughed about it because my mom passed away right after mercy and she was very italian and always some sort of pasta going on. <laughs> and so it really got to the point where I, I couldn't, like I couldn't sing unless I remember like one night I was going to, to do a show and um, I remember I was, I was wondering maybe I was going to go up and sing with Slash and Perry Farrell and Tom Morello, Jerry Cantrell. Wow. We were doing this um, benefit show and I was just thinking like, oh man, I, I have to have my voice tonight. And I, my voice hadn't been working well at all. And so I remember just sitting down and eating like a big dish of pasta. I remember feeling like, well, well, that kind of feels good. I feel like, I feel like shit cooking up in there. Like good. Okay. And so I said, well, let me eat a little more. And then, <laughs> wow, I can, I can really put away a lot of pasta. <laughs> I, I basically sat and almost like, ate like a pound of pasta before the show. <laughs> and then I felt that night, my voice come back. And so wow. it began this long, almost decade long period of me having to eat like pasta before every show. Oh my God. I've never I, heard of that. Something in my body changed. You know, you see how thin I am. Yeah. My mom was really thin. So it's, it's kind of a natural thing for me. And, and I, you know, I, I've run around a lot. I, I've, I run, you know, a bunch every week. I run a few days a week okay. and then like running around stage. And I just basically what it came down to, I wasn't nourished enough. Wow. So I got that back under control and I gave in a little bit into my, there's a space where the voice is 
that I remember admiring a lot when I was younger. It's like the Roy Orbison spot. It's it's the later Elvis years. It's the later Bowie years, you know? Yeah. Early on when Bowie was like, he was a little more nasally, right? Take a look at the man being up the wrong guy. You know, but as he yeah. got older, Lawman beating up the wrong guy. And I always loved that voice, but I just felt like as a kid, if I did that, it would sound like I was putting on a voice. Okay. Uh, and so I avoided it, even though I knew that it was healthier way to sing. I just avoided it and I could just grinded more. And so I gave in a little bit more to that voice as well. And so now I know like the spots where I use it and it helps me to strengthen my voice as I sing rather than deteriorate it. Oh, that's excellent. Speaking of that, ours is going on tour soon. Is the band pretty much the consistent band that you've had for the past few albums? It would be the same personnel? Yeah, well, um, many people have not seen this band live, but this is really who I've been playing with for the last, safely to say, like, on and off by like seven years. Oh, wow. Um, at least, if not a little bit longer. So this is technically, even though it's funny, even, even though we haven't been out playing, this is in a sense, like technically the longest running band that I've ever had. Oh, wow. But we haven't been out playing shows in this time. It's basically like we're 18. Like this is the band that I, I was trying to build from the beginning way way back and because we've had a, a similar experience where we're just underground working and working and working and just just finding finding the vibe between us so yeah we're excited about it I, i've never been so excited about going out to play as i am it's you know th through the years it was more like i was driven to like to try to be great and i was serious about being great but i wasn't always excited about it oh okay you know it was more like oh i guess i guess we gotta do this i, I better not mess <laughs> up <laughs> but it's become completely different um it's become so much more now like wow I, this is the way it's supposed to be like wow we're excited to go out and play these songs is there going to be a, a mix of stuff from all the albums, or are you going to focus more on the newer stuff? There, we will definitely play a few distinct ones from the from Distorted Lullabies. Awesome. And then we'll kind of mix it up between the last few albums. Okay. Awesome. We did so much touring on Mercy, so much touring on that record, that I, I don't know if there may be one or two songs from Mercy that we throw in okay. on this tour. But yeah, there's so much music to catch people up on because we've put out now, say it's b between New Age Heroin, that's 10 songs and, and ours, that's 17 or 27, plus two EPs at 10, five each, so that's 37, and then another EP at three, so that's 40 songs. And then there's like the 200 that you've written in the that haven't even come out yet. Yeah, so that's, that's 40 there. Boxer is another 10, so that's 50. So we kind of have like 50 new songs to go experience with people. Wow. Oh, man. So it's, it's a little tricky doing the set list, but well, we do our best. Well, I can't wait. I'm hoping that you guys continue it and come to uh, the D.C. area because I'm dying to see you guys live. We will. We, we kept almost coming there 
like before all this to the was the the new venue that we played there great venue uh the, well let's see the old ones there's a 930 club there's the uh black cat um it's a newer one oh uh, there's a few newer ones that i've i haven't been to yet so i'm not familiar with them but yeah i played there once um acoustically played there with royston i think oh cool yeah yeah, yeah, you've worked with so many amazing people. Royston, Royston Langdon, uh, all the DeLeo brothers, you know, with Velvet Revolver and uh, STP. You've had just a, an incredible career. Yeah, it's been a blessing. I got to tour for a bit with Lana Del Rey, which was great. And she wrote a song about you. Yeah. So, but she, did she write, she wrote that a while back. Did you guys know each other before that or did, was she a fan or? No, I, I think, um, well, I guess she, maybe she was a fan that... The same person turned, I think, turned her on to me that I told you about earlier, David Kahn, the person who basically started my whole bidding war. Yeah. I think he turned her on to, to uh, my stuff. Oh, that's awesome. He was working with her. I have kept you for quite a while. I definitely want to have you back on the show, talk about some more stuff, and talk about something besides you, because I'm sure that gets... Great. <laughs> I'm sure you get tired of answering the same questions. I hope I hope this wasn't too much of the same for you. No, I think I think we as much as it's it's similar, I think we, we got into some different things I, that I, a lot of people didn't know. So I think this was great. Oh, and this is one thing I forgot to ask. Where can people follow the band and, and find out tour dates and uh news about the band? Is there a website, social media presence? I know you're not big on social media, so I like social media for the idea that it's, you know, it's another way to connect and communicate with people and um, bring your your art to them and yeah. in turn see other people's art. I think it's it's great like that. But yeah, we haven't done much of it through the years because I've just been a little more concerned about trying to make great music than I was about, you know, networking. Right. I'm a little weird with, with networking, but... <laughs> The best place to to find out the most accurate and up to date information is at ours.net. Excellent, Jimmy. Thank you again so much. It's been awesome You're to meet welcome. you, and I, I appreciate all the time you give me tonight. Oh, it's my pleasure. Good talking to you, man. In my heart, raised a beat. Oh, how I cried. thinking of you. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 